Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I pray that you'll hear the invitation of God to join in His mission in this message. This week we conclude our exploration of what it means to discern the invitation of God together by looking at a significant controversy in the early church, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. morning's Bible reading is found in Acts chapter 15 and we're reading verses 1 to 6. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all of the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Well, good morning. Great to see you uh, in the building and nice to know that you're there online. I've been kind of keeping track on my phone, so I've been kind of keeping up with the chat. It's great to have you with us. Trust that you feel part of what we're doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's great to have you with us. Uh, As we wrap up this series, as Matt said earlier, discerning the invitation of God together, part of our um, uh, kind of overall strategy to try to discern the invitation of God for us as a community of faith. Uh, kind of organizationally, this will result at the end of the year with a five-year plan. Uh, but theologically, I hope that it'll be so much more than that, that it will actually be, a re- there'll be a real sense for us as a community of faith that we have indeed discerned God's invitation in particular areas where he is at work and is inviting us to join him. A really important process and starting uh, obviously after next Sundays on uh, AGM, we'll be kind of entering to stage two of that process and we'll be talking a lot more about that. But we have, over the last uh, number of weeks, been looking at examples of God's people as they seek to discern the invitation of God. Whether that be the apostles appointing someone to replace Judas as they reflect upon their purpose that Jesus had given to them, whether it be Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel as they confront an external crisis, or as we began to see last week, when God does something unexpected and extraordinary, forcing everyone to rethink everything. Uh, And today's message is essentially an extension or a companion of what Roxanne reflected on last week. So last week, Roxanne looked at Acts chapter 11, uh, which opens with some blowback from what happened in Acts chapter 10. 
In Acts chapter 10, a fellow named Cornelius, a Roman centurion and God-fearer, uh, had a vision from God in which he was told to contact Simon Peter and have him come to his house. At the same time that uh, the, uh, the messengers were making their way to where Simon was, Simon was waiting for lunch and had a vision of a tablecloth filled with unclean animals with a voice from heaven saying, kill and eat. And when Peter said, you've got to be kidding, the voice said, don't call something unclean that I have now made clean. That happened three times. As he comes out of the trance, there's a knock at the door from the messengers and the spirit says, go with these men. And so Peter shows up and steps into Cornelius's house and that is where the trouble begins. Because chapter 11 begins with a number of the circumcised believers, not a reference to uh, kind of um, all of them, because I think at that point only Jews and Samaritans, who all would have been circumcised, but to a particular group who made the law of Moses a priority, said to Peter, you went into the home of an uncircumcised person and ate with them. Notice that? It's the social convention that's the problem. It was the social convention that was grounded in the theological beliefs about what God's purpose had been for the people of Israel. That they had been set apart to be for God a demonstration to the world of what it looked like to live in relationship with him. And the law was a reflection of that. And so for Peter to step into a Gentile's home was just like way out. And so Peter then responds by telling them what happened when he stepped into the home. Basically, he said, I realized that God wanted to include the Gentiles in the message of Jesus, so I began to preach to them about Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit fell on them, just like he fell on us at Pentecost, and I thought, huh, maybe the Gentiles are in too. And the wonderful thing about that little story in chapter 11 is the way it ends. Chapter 11, verse uh, 18, I believe it is, if I just find it here. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And you would be forgiven if you went on to believe that they all lived happily ever after. Because the very next section tells us about some other believers who basically didn't wait for a Gentile to have a vision from God, but just started going to the Gentiles and saying, have you heard about Jesus? And when they came to faith in a place called Antioch, they established a church and the apostles heard about the church and they're like, oh, this is a little bit weird. So they sent Barnabas to check it out and Barnabas goes up and he goes, this is amazing. This is definitely the work of God. And he goes and finds Paul and brings Paul back in partial fulfillment of Paul's commission to preach to the Gentiles. It is all happening. That church becomes one of the most significant churches in the early Christian movement. The church at Antioch and the church at Alexandria dominated in terms of theological development and key thinkers and leaders of the early Christian movement. It's the first the first Christians were found in Antioch in the sense that that's where the, the name was first used. And from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas go on what's known as his first missionary journey, where they wander into what we would call modern-day Turkey, but was then the Roman province of Asia Minor, and they go to a number of cities, and they go to the Jews first, and when the Jews kind of believe or reject them, they go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles believe it's just happening, right? The Spirit of God is at work. It's fantastic, and they all lived happily ever after until chapter 15. It's about 10 years later. It's about 10 years after Cornelius has come to faith. So the early community of believers has had quite a bit of time to reflect on what's happened. And in chapter 15, 
certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this, we're told, brings them into sharp dispute with Paul and Barnabas. And the the Greek terms that are translated here as sharp dispute are translated in other parts of the New Testament as insurrection and rioting. So this is a sharp dispute. This isn't kind of a, oh yeah, we had a bit of a, you know, hard conversation. No, like it's on the edge of becoming a riot. It's a big issue that they're dealing with. And it's an issue ultimately of salvation. Did you hear it? Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's a salvation issue. And undergirding it, if we had more time, we could unpack the the kind of central question, which is ultimately about the continuity of God's purposes. In other words, if God has fulfilled the Old Testament in Jesus, then there's some sort of continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. And that's where the problem comes. Because for there to be continuity, but you're adding Gentiles means that they're not exactly the same at all. They're very, very different. But if there's continuity and there's that much difference, how does that get worked out? There's theological conviction, there are social conventions all wrapped up in this question. And it becomes a really critical one throughout the rest of the New Testament. You actually find it in places like Galatians, where the same thing seems to have occurred. Paul has planted a church that's primarily Gentile. Uh, And then some others have come and said, no, you need to be circumcised. And they've gone, oh, okay, I guess so. And Paul's like, no, no, that's the summary of Galatians. Uh, Romans is essentially wrapped up with the same question of Jews and Gentiles and how they became one body. You find the same idea in Ephesians. This is a really critical, long-running debate, a sharp dispute that threatens to tear the early church apart. This is the, is the, the, the issue that they are grappling with. But I want to spend more time looking at how they discerned what God was doing than I want to spend time kind of unpacking the issue itself. Right? Um, to, to give you just a little bit of an overview, though, what, the, what these Judaizers, as they're often called, were seeking to do is to create a two-stage process of faith. And to some degree, it makes sense. Uh, if Jesus was a Jew and the first apostles were Jews, and Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, and his ministry was to the Jewish people, then it makes sense, doesn't it? That for a Gentile to come to faith, you should probably stop first for a while and figure out who Jesus is by being Jewish, and then go on to faith. The idea of circumcision, I think you can probably think a little bit about in the same way that we might talk about baptism. Uh, Circumcision, male circumcision was a physical action that carried symbolic weight. Uh, if If you undertook the act of circumcision, you were essentially saying, I'm willing to obey the entire law of Moses. Just like when someone is baptized, the physical action of being immersed in water is a symbol of their decision to follow everything that Jesus has called them to. It's the same idea. Nonetheless, here's this sharp debate. And and I think there are four things that the apostles and the early church do that I think we can learn from in our own process of discernment. 
And I want to explore them in the order of their appearance in the story, even though I believe that the order of priority is probably different, and I think you'll see what I mean by the end of it. But I want to follow through the story and look at the four different things that contribute to their decision, that contribute to the decision that they finally make. And the first of them is quite simple. They determine that they will submit to the authority of the apostles. It's a really interesting thing for us to talk about, isn't it? Submission to authority. I don't know how uh, we go as Baptists in that space. I don't know exactly how we go as Australians in that space. We have an interesting relationship with authority, don't we? I'll just leave that for one moment, shall I? Probably should admit that I also have a conflict of interest here, don't I? Uh, In terms of how this works, right? But there's something quite significant, I think, that the church determines that they will submit to the authority of the apostles and the elders. So there's been this sharp dispute. There's been this really controversial conversation that has begun to rage in the church. And what do they do? Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up and see the apostles and elders about this question. They recognized that this was a question that they couldn't handle, shall we say, on their own. That there was an element that they needed to go to those who had been appointed, those who had been spiritually anointed, had been set apart by Jesus himself in order to establish the church and go and ask them what to do. I think there's something in that for us to to grapple with in terms of how we go about making decisions. Because sometimes the decisions that we make on our own to discern what God is saying to us are decisions that ultimately are submitted to no one other than ourselves. And here we see, in this situation and circumstance, that the people of God turn, in fact, in some willingness to submit to the appointed authority in the church. I think that's just kind of interesting. The second thing that you note, though, is that as they're sent off and on their way, they travel through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they tell how the Gentiles had been converted. And what we find out in, in the kind of the, the next section is that to, um, for the believers, they take some time to theologically reflect on their experiences. So just after the apostles and elders meet to consider this question in verse 6, after much discussion, I'd like to know how much discussion there was. It sounds like there was quite a bit. But after much discussion, Peter gets up and addresses them. And it's interesting, a decade later, he is still reflecting on the same event. He's still reflecting about what happened with Cornelius. So listen to what he says. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The second thing the believers do is they reflect theologically on their experiences. And Peter's experience with Cornelius has not grown in the telling, but he has a little bit more nuance than he did in chapter 11. 
In chapter 11, fresh off the event itself, he basically just says, it wasn't my fault. I just started preaching. The Holy Spirit fell on. What am I supposed to do? Here he's gone a little bit further, hasn't he? We, we, we were saved exactly like the Gentiles were. And that reality leads him to consider then that God has not discriminated between the two of them. And therefore, the law, while good and beneficial and part of God's revelation, was not necessary to place upon the Gentiles, even if, as a Jew, he continued to follow that law out. You can see why this becomes so complicated for them, can't you? He reflects theologically on his experience. And that's followed up in the very next verse by talking about Paul and Barnabas, who tell about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. They, too, reflect on what has happened I mean, Peter's reflection goes all the way back to the Old Testament. His reflection has gone back to the people of God as a whole and their relationship with the law and how they have failed to live up to it. He says, like, it's just, this is, this is such a big deal. We, we can't, we can't go back. We, we, can't, we can't add this to them. They reflect on their experience from a theological perspective, thinking about what God's activity means in their day-to-day lives. And then James stands up. We don't know exactly why or how James became the leader of the early church, but when Peter was driven from Jerusalem, it seems that James kind of fell into that leadership position, was appointed into that leadership position. He's the same James who wrote the letter of James and is most likely the half-brother of Jesus. He has become the leader of the early Christian movement. And James stands up. And notice what he does. Because he reflects theologically on scripture. Again, in order of appearance, not necessarily in order of importance. He says, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. And then he cites Isaiah 9. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. And because of his reflection on Scripture, he then says these words, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone came to me and said, I've just become a believer, what are the four most important things that I should avoid? This would not be the list that I would give them. I might include sexual immorality. I'm probably not going to mention food sacrificed to idols, probably not going to mention the food that's been strangled or eating of blood. I think that's kind of obvious, right? Just stay away from those things, right? Uh, What's going on here seems to be, shall we say, once again wrapped around the social conventions driven by the theological reflection, right? So the idea for the people of Israel was that they were to be set apart, For the earliest followers of Jesus, they felt the same thing was true. But what was to set them apart was not their obedience to the letter of the law, but their faithfulness to the person of Jesus. 
right? Not obedience to the letter of the law, but faithfulness to the person of Jesus. Now, those two things are not totally separated from one another because Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law, right? I have not come to abolish any of it because the law was an expression of relationship with God. But for the people of Israel, one of the places that they had failed consistently was in relationship to idolatry. I've been doing some... um, bit of study on uh, the anger of God in the Bible and where God gets angry and why he gets angry. And it's not as often as you might think, but if you want to know the place where God gets most angry, it's when his people turn to idols. Now that is far and away the number one place where God's anger is stirred up. There are other places, but that's by far and away the most common place. Ben Witherington, who's a New Testament scholar, makes a persuasive case that all four of these prohibitions are wrapped up with idolatry. Obviously, food uh, sacrificed to idols makes some sense there. The blood and the strangulation make some sense in that case. But sexual immorality was also a key component of pagan worship. If you read through 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about eating food sacrificed to idols, he also talks about sexual morality in that context as well. And so what James and the believers seem to be saying is, to the Gentiles, you have been saved by faith in Jesus. Be faithful to him. And in your faithfulness, make sure that you cut off all of the associations with the pagan idolatry that you have been raised in. Stay away from those things. That's the theological component. The social convention is that then, if I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile, and you have avoided those things that I find wildly offensive, we can actually hang out. Theology impacts community. (laughs) What they believed that God was calling them to enabled them to actually have table fellowship, right? We could actually sit down and be friends and Christians. Wouldn't that be nice, right? This is part of what's going on here. So, they've submitted to the authority of those appointed. They have reflected theologically on their experiences. They've reflected on Scripture. But there's one more, and it's actually found in James's letter to the believers. If you have your Bibles and want to look in chapter 15, starting in verse 24, uh, this is his letter. He says, We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Did you notice that little phrase? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Luke hasn't mentioned the Holy Spirit in chapter 15 yet, has he? but it's actually perhaps the most important part of the story. 
And again, while I have gone through this in the order in which they have appeared in the story, I think the priority is perhaps flipped the other way around. Because the church of Christ, as we sang earlier today, the church of Christ was born when the Spirit was poured out on the believers. Before that, they were just believers. After Pentecost, they were a church. And all the way through the book of Acts, it's been the Holy Spirit who has been driving the narrative. It's the Holy Spirit who has been leading and guiding and helping them discern and then doing some spectacular things that has forced them to reconsider the whole thing all over again. The Holy Spirit has been in wor at work all the way through this. And that speaks again to the purposes of God. Because the Holy Spirit has been sent by Jesus. Why? To complete his work. That's why the Holy Spirit's been given to us. It's not just as kind of a, a nice gesture. It's, it's just that God might complete the work that he has begun. Teaching and confirming uh, in us, being a guarantee, uh, a down payment of what is to come. All of those things, but it's tied in with the plans and purposes of God. And as the Holy Spirit has revealed the plans and purposes of God, notice that the followers of Jesus then went back to Scripture and said, well, in the light of what God is doing, God has saved the Gentiles. We've got to reread this thing with that in mind. We've got to reread the Scriptures. We've got to go back through this again. We've got to pour over it once again to see what that means for us. We need to think about that in relationship to what we have experienced. Where has God done stuff? Stuff that's been unexpected, that's been messy, that's been all over the place, but we have to rethink it now because of what the Spirit's done. And it's the purposes of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that frames up the decision that's ultimately made by the apostles and the elders. This is not a decision made by a group of men in some room figuring out what they think ought to happen next. This is a group of Holy Spirit-inspired people set apart by the Spirit and by the church through whom the Spirit itself was at work, who have reflected on the experiences they have had of what God has done in their lives and the lives of those around them, who have reflected again on Scripture as the Holy Spirit has continued to complete the work begun in Jesus. And I think that might provide us with a helpful model for discerning the invitation of God for us. And it begins by recognizing, remembering, and relying upon the Holy Spirit given to each of us. To all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has been poured out to continue the work of Jesus in our lives and in the world. The basis of our invitation to what God is doing in the world begins with his invitation to us to step into relationship with him. It invites us to turn again to scripture, to ask what it is that we see as the spirit continues to reveal himself and his plans to us. It invites us to reflect again on our experiences for those of you who have read the long read that kind of outlines our process of discernment, one of the things that I reflect on is that while God may very well call us to some sort of radical, brand new, never thought of different thing as a community of faith, I suspect that he will in fact work in similar patterns and ways that he has worked in our community in the past. And while we need to be ready to do something radically different, 
I do think reflection on what God has done in our community of faith is not a bad place to start. And that ultimately, the decisions that are made by the leadership here, in consultation, in collaboration, in prayer and reflection and commitment, framed up ultimately by the purposes and plans of God. This is the pattern that we see. And notice, it's not always neat. I'm kind of hoping it'll be neat. I'm kind of hoping that at the end of the day we'll all just rejoice and no one will have any more questions and we'll all just praise God saying, wow, look at that. We're all in agreement. I suspect it's going to be a little bit harder than that. But I also know that the Holy Spirit continues to be at work in our lives, continuing to bring about the plans and purposes of God to restore and renew the world in Jesus Christ. Every life, every family, every community, every organization, every nation, everything. I think that's worth seeking to discern. I reflected in the E! News, for those of you who read that each week, uh, reflected that I am getting curious and uh, growing in anticipation of what God might do. Curious because I don't really know how it's going to work, so to speak, and anticipation because I'm pretty sure that God will lead us because we are setting our hearts to ask him. And that's the biblical framework for God to lead and guide. I think it's pretty important for us. So as we come to the conclusion of this four-week series, I hope that you're a little bit encouraged as we move forward, but also um, engaged in this process, uh, joining us in prayer, joining us to, in commitment to see what God has in store for us, that we might indeed praise God in all that he does. So will you join me as we take a moment to pray before we wrap up our service? Heavenly Father, thank you that your plans um, proceed that you are committed to uh, restoring and renewing all things. We see that commitment in the person of Jesus and in the outpouring of your Holy Spirit given so freely to each one of us. And I pray for each of us as individuals and as families and as a community of faith that we might be discerning your voice. I pray that your Holy Spirit might be active amongst us stirring our hearts and touching our minds and helping us see uh, things in your word that perhaps we haven't seen before, helping us to interpret and make sense of our history, both individually and communally, in terms of what you are doing in our midst. And you might ultimately lead us to make decisions that are framed within your purposes and plans, and that there might indeed be a sense of unity, a sense of joy, sense of gladness at what you are doing, even in the midst of all that we are about to embark on. I pray that you would lead and guide us as a community of faith into your plans and purposes, because where you are at work is where we want to be. Because where you are at work, where you are active, where you are inviting us in, well, that's, that's just the best place to be. So I pray that you would lead and guide us, for I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all believers to continue and complete the work of Jesus. The Spirit's work undergirds our reflection on Scripture, our reflection on our experiences, and on our decision-making. 
The example of the early believers provides us with a pattern to follow in our own lives as we rely upon the leading of the Spirit to discern God's invitation. Remember that we produce discipleship menus for each of our sermons, a simple set of exercises that can help us keep these themes on our hearts and minds throughout the week. The menus are available on our website under the Next Steps tab. We also release The Big Three, a weekly podcast that engages with three questions raised by this sermon. It comes out on Wednesdays and is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us this week. You can join us for our services on site at 9.30 and 6 p.m. or online at www.gbconline.org.au at 9.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time. God bless.